following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. You know, 11 years ago, back when Zanga was a thing, does anyone remember Zanga? I know you're dating yourself. Uh, I wrote... I wrote a gut-wrenching blog post about my then six-year-old son, Caleb. It was probably one of the hardest things I'd ever written in my life. Um, I don't mean to start the sermon off on such a somber note, but I want to I read this entry for you. I think it fits the theme of this message, so please bear with me. February 25th, 2008. There comes a time in every parent's life when you realize you have done your job and in faith, you leave the results up to God. You raise the child to the best of your ability, rearing them with the great hope that one day when they are old enough to make their own decisions, they will not be swayed by the world or its carnal pleasures, but by the guiding light of truth, love, and your example. I'm sad to say that I have failed as a parent. Caleb has fallen away completely. Although I have tried my best to help him with one of the most important decisions in his life, it has all been in vain, and I am completely heartbroken. Yes, my friends, Caleb has become a Cubs fan. (laughs) These are some pictures of him before he went prodigal on me. And I've asked myself, why, how, O Lord, where did I go wrong? But all I am met with is silence, deafening silence. Since the day he was born, I have told him about all the cardinal greats from Dizzy Dean and Stan Musial to Lou Brock and Bob Gibson, Ozzie Smith and Albert Pujols, the legendary Hall of Famers, the 17 National League pennants, the 10 World Series titles. Sorry, it's actually 11 now. This is back in 2008 I wrote this. (laughs) I bought him jerseys, souvenir bats, pennants, and banners, but for what? so he can spit in my face and pledge his allegiance to the most renowned loser in all of sports. <laughs> you guys did win one since then, too. So, I'm seriously considering moving all the cardinal pennants and banners to Timothy's room <laughs> and putting up posters of heroes of male figure skating in Caleb's room as punishment. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with male figure skating. Maybe it's just a phase. Maybe it's all the persecution from insecure Cubs fans that he's had to endure. Maybe it's all because of all his loser friends in kindergarten are Cubs fans. Maybe it's because his favorite color is blue. I don't know. But I haven't stopped praying for him. And I ask that you join me. For those of you that have caused this with your unscrupulous proselytizing of a small child, shame on you. You have broken the deep fellowship shared between a father and son. May the fleas of a thousand camels infest your tightest underwear. Sorry, I was pretty upset when I wrote that. (laughs) But because I'm a Christian, I still forgive you. Besides, I have not lost hope. I I know one day he will see the light and return home. We all bleed cardinal red. So the next picture is a picture of our family reunion. It was actually taken last weekend. As you can see, we are very much a house divided. Someone came up with the idea of wearing either Cubs paraphernalia or, or cardinals based on your allegiance, but as you can also see, if you advance, Caleb is wearing a cardinal jersey, (laughs) so there is a happy ending to this story, this modern-day prodigal son parable. Um, 
I know it's all kind of tongue-in-cheek. I wasn't totally serious when I wrote that. But as parents, I think we all want our children to love the things that we love, to share our passion for the things that we treasure. And we'll often do everything in our power to instill that love within them, won't we? And it can become an obsession. <laughs> it was, I was a little bit out of control for me, I admit. But it makes me think, do we bring that same diligence, that same passion in sharing with them our love for God and our faith? And the truth is, it's hard. It's a very hard thing to share your faith with your children. I think it's far more challenging to share your faith with your child than it is to share your passion for a sports team. And as a result, we often become discouraged when we, we struggle to see our faith imparted in our own children. But there's hope. You know, God has given us a blueprint for how to share our faith across generations. And, you know, I'm not speaking from a place of wisdom here. I just want to give that caveat. I'm not speaking from a place of authority. Um, I'm the parents of two teenagers and a preteen now. And I know firsthand how difficult it is to impart faith to the ones you love. And, and I look at so many of you out here, um, so many young children in our church, and honestly, I wish I could turn back the, the hands of time. I wish I could press a reset button. I, I wish I could learn the things that I, I wish that I, when my children were younger that I'm speaking of now. And, and you know, that said, I, I don't want to pretend that what I'm trying to offer you today is some type of foolproof formula for fostering faith. God cannot be reduced to a formula, and no matter how godly we may be as parents, no matter how faithful we may be in raising our children in a biblical way, ultimately the results are up to God. Only God can transform a heart. And I'm actually very grateful for this. Can you imagine how proud we would be if our children knew the Lord and we believed that it was solely because of us. Can you imagine how heartbroken we would be if our children did not know the Lord and we believed that it was solely because of us? I think it's a mercy of God that he does not rely on us to bring our children to faith. But don't get me wrong. He, he can use us and he desires to use us for that purpose. And the truth is he will often grow our own faith by using our desire to see our children's faith grow. And he often does this by bringing us to our knees. Uh, if you are sitting here today and you are not a parent, I want to ask you to resist the temptation to dismiss this entire sermon as something that may be just irrelevant to you. I believe these truth principles are relevant to anyone who desires to share their faith, regardless of whether you have children or not. I think there's a wisdom here for everyone because it is the wisdom of God. So if we could just one more time turn to the Lord in prayer before we look into his word today. Lord, we are so grateful that ultimately um, the passing of our faith does not rely solely upon us, but that it is in your hands. We thank you for the wisdom that you have provided us in your word yet that we can participate in that work of demonstrating that you are real, that you are alive, your word is true, and you do in fact love us and desire the best for us. And so, Lord, as we look into your word today, we ask that your spirit would speak to us, not just in our heads, but, Lord, into our hearts, that we might see your heart for us 
your desire for every generation to come to know you, to walk in your ways, to experience your goodness and your grace. We submit this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. You know, when I was in seminary, my Old, to- Old Testament professor at Moody would often say that Deuteronomy was the most important book in the Old Testament. And that always kind of struck me as a bit strange. But when you think about it, the context and the content of Deuteronomy, I can, I can see where he's coming from now when he says that. You know, Deuteronomy is essentially a sermon of all the wisdom and the teachings of God given through Moses to the Israelites as they are on the cusp of the promised land. This is 40 years after their deliverance from Egypt. And if you recall, the old generation of Israelites, those who lacked the faith to enter into the promised land, who had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, they'd pretty much all perished by now, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. And Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, is now speaking to this new generation of children, And these are Moses' last words, really. 120 years of wisdom condensed into one epic sermon given to a new generation about to enter into the promised land. And so, you know, given that context, I think you can understand that there's, there's probably a lot of good things to learn here, right, in this book. A lot of gold to mine. So if you could, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we're going to read the entire chapter. I apologize in advance. It's It's a bit long, it's 25 verses, but it's so good. So if you could read along with me, this is in the ESV. It says this, Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the God of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall put the Lord your God, not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. 
You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers, by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of these testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us up out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Amen. Yeah, I think one thing is clear as you read this. You know, God's great desire is that the faith would extend from generation to generation. And we see God's heart right in these opening verses. He says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. What? That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. The Lord wants our children our grandchildren, to know him and to love him as much as we do. More than we do, actually. But how does God instruct us to go about doing this? He tells us right in these opening verses, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life. You know, I think it would be very easy to read this chapter, Deuteronomy 6, and, and really just walk away with one message here, that, God really wants us to obey his commandments. And he wants us to teach our children to do the same. And while that is true, if that is all that we walk away with, I think that would be a shame. Because the predicate to obeying God in the way that he desires requires that we first understand God for who he is. And it's from that place which everything else flows. And what is it? Moses tells us that in order to obey God in faith, we must first fear him. Fear him. And that's kind of a loaded, loaded word, isn't it? I mean, uh, if you're in a community group, we've been going through the book of Proverbs up until our break this summer, and we, you know, we learned there that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so for Moses to begin with this idea, fear the Lord, as central to everything that he's about to say is actually very consistent with what is expressed later through the wisdom of Solomon. But what does that mean, to fear the Lord? We hear this uh, multiple times over this chapter. And I think this, is, this phrase is often misunderstood because for most of us, fearing someone often comes from being the victim of abuse, of power. And so to be told that by God that we should fear him it's, it's a bit off-putting, isn't it? I think this is a term that actually doesn't translate very well in English because it's not talking about fear the way that we understand the word fear. 
I love the way that the late R.C. Sproul defines what it means to fear God. And this is a bit of a longer quote, but um, if you stay with me, I think he explains it so well. He says this, We need to make some important distinctions about the biblical meaning of fearing God. When Luther, Martin Luther, struggled with that, he made this distinction, which has since become somewhat famous. He distinguished between what we, he called a servile fear and a phileo fear. The servile fear is a kind of fear that a prisoner in a torture chamber has for his tormentor, the jailer, or the executioner. It's that kind of dreadful anxiety in which someone is frightened by the clear and present danger that, it, that is represented by another person. Or it's the kind of fear that a slave would have at the hands of a malicious master who would come with a whip and torment the slave. Servile fear refers to a posture of servitude toward a malevolent owner. But Luther distinguished between that and what he called filial fear. Drawing from the Latin concept from which we get the idea of family. It refers to the fear that a child has for his father. And in this regard, Luther is thinking of a child who has tremendous respect and love for his father or mother. And who dearly wants to please them. He has a fear or an anxiety of offending the one that he loves. Not because he's afraid of torture or even of punishment, but rather because he's afraid of displeasing the one who is, in that child's world, the source of security and love. The focus here is on a sense of awe and respect for the majesty of God. And that's often lacking in contemporary evangelical Christianity. We get very flippant and cavalier with God as if we had a casual relationship with the Father. We're invited to call him Abba Father and to have the personal intimacy promised to us But still, we're not to be flippant with God. We're always to maintain a healthy respect and adoration for him. So to love God means to first to fear him. And in order to fear him, we have to see him in the right way. Not as a malicious master, but as a loving father. And this requires faith. Trusting that God is the only one who not only knows what is best for us, but he wants what is best for us. To love God is to trust that he alone knows what is best for us, and he wants the best for us. The previous generation of Israelites, the parents of these children were hearing this sermon from Moses. They didn't trust God's character. They didn't trust God's command enough to obey him, and so they didn't enter the promised land. And this isn't, wasn't only a battle you know, exclusive to the wilderness. This was, this was also the battle from the very beginning at the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve did not believe that God knew better. Adam and Eve didn't believe that God was for them. Instead, they believed in the lies of Satan, that God was holding out on them. And this same battle continues in, I think, every heart today in some sense. Can we trust in God's character enough to obey his commands? And God wants us to know his heart. And you, you notice all throughout this chapter, with each charge to obey God's commands, there are these purpose statements which follow, explaining why we should obey. Verse 2, it says, that your days may be long. Verse 3 and 18, that it may go well with you. Verse 3, that you may multiply greatly. This is the heart of the Lord. God wants us to flourish under his care. 
And he wants us to know that this is his very intention in giving us his laws. I love how verse 24 towards the end of this chapter wraps it up and it says, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God. Why? For our good, always. Always for our good. That he might preserve us alive as we are this day. God wants us to understand and remember and know his love for us because before he asks us for anything from us, And what is it that he desires from us in response to knowing who he is? It says in verse 4 and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is a very familiar verse, right? Jesus repeats this very statement in the Gospels, verse 5, when an expert of the law asks him, what is the greatest commandment? Everything hinges on this law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And I think it's telling that an expert of the law, an expert at keeping the law even, can still miss the point of the law. Later on in the upper room with his disciples, just before his death, Jesus says this in John 14, 15, If you love me, keep my commands. Why does Jesus seem to tie this idea, this proof of love with obedience to his commands the same way that Moses does in Deuteronomy here? I think it's because there's something inherently intertwined between love and obedience. And I want you to hear me carefully. You know, God's God's love never results from our obedience. And what I'm saying is they are related because faith-filled obedience and obedience that is filled with faith is a result of receiving and reciprocating God's love. One that is rooted in an understanding of his heart for you and faith that he knows what is best and that he is for you. That is faith-filled obedience. And there's a difference between having faith in your obedience and obedience in faith. Having faith in your obedience says, if I obey God's commands, then God will love me. And we often tend to go there, don't we? But having an obedience in faith says, if I love God, I will obey his commands. But even hearing this idea that if I love God, I will obey his commands, it, even that seems a little bit off, right? I mean, I, try this with one, someone you love tonight, you know, when you go home. Uh, ask them to wash the dishes or take out the garbage. And then say, if you love me, you will obey my commands. (laughs) It's probably not going to end very well. (laughs) But I think there's a real difference here. We have to remember who's asking. Who's asking us to do this. The difference is that none of us are all-knowing. None of us are all-powerful. None of us are all-loving. But God is. And because God is, he can ask us, He can ask this of us if we trust in who he is. This verse, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, is also known as the the Shema, the Jewish Shema. Something that is still recited religiously in Jewish homes today. And the verses that follow instruct us on 
how we are to teach the next generation. Listen, verse 7 through 9. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down, when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You know, these verses instruct us in how we are to go about teaching our children to love God. And it's very important. So important that not only is the Shema recited, you know, by Jews today, but some will actually hang parchments of Scripture on their doorposts. And they're called these mezuzahs. I don't know if you have any Jewish friends. If you've been in a Jewish home, you might have seen this as you enter into their home. Orthodox Jews even take it a step further and wear these small square leather boxes on their left arm and on their heads. And these are called phylacteries, which contain writings of Scripture. And <clears throat> it's, it's, they're, they're trying to follow these verses, actually, Deuteronomy 6 to a T. Literally, to, to remind them to keep the law, to obey it. But what is God trying to teach us here? I think God is asking for more than just a literal, outward, external type of obedience here. Uh, you know, I think the other takeaway from these verses, it's often, I think, easy as parents to simply talk about God and the Bible with our children all the time. And, that's, and, and that becomes the main takeaway from these verses, to teach them diligently. But, and I believe that. I believe that we are called to teach our children, obviously, with our words. I think we're being called to do far more than just that, though. Notice the charge here. If you can go back to that verse. Um, we're to teach them when we are sitting and we are walking. We are to teach them when we are lying down and when we rise up. No matter the time of day, no matter what we are doing in life, we are to constantly be teaching our children. We are to bind them on our hands and between our eyes. Our faith must be more than outward. It must be inward. It must be a part of who we are. It must be our very identity. And so the way that we live and that we work with our hands, the way that we process the world and that we think between our eyes, our faith in God is to encompass all of us because our love for God is to come from all of us. God wants that kind of love to be reciprocated back to him or heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we are to write them on our doorposts. You know, I th- obviously, if the, this generation of Israelites, this is only the second generation from the actual Passover. And this is, you know, the Passover is one of the most visible and profound ob- observances of God's love and redemption for his people. This is what I would consider basically the gospel story in the Old Testament. This is what the Lord wants us to teach our children. Not just with our words, with our lives. And God wants us to model that gospel story to our children, a, to our children, a living faith in him. That is what he wants us to model. A living faith that is marked by obedience to him. And when we do this, we are revealing God's love for his people, to his people, in a way that everyone can see with their own eyes. 
Teach them by remembering not just the laws of God, but the love of God through these laws. You know, it's, it's easy to check all the boxes, I think, you know, as Christian parents growing up in America, right? Don't miss Sunday worship. Sign your kids up for Awana or VBS. Send them to a Christian school. Do family devotionals daily. You know, these are all good things. I'm not taking away from any of those. But if all we model for our children is a legalistic obedience, if that is all that is, then that is all that is likely that will be produced from their lives. Let them see God's love for themselves by witnessing not only your faithful obedience, but a faith-filled obedience in him. And by by that I mean obedience not to manufacture a result or curry God's favor, but an obedience that is rooted in faith, that you already have God's favor in your life. And you are doing what he says because you genuinely believe that God loves you and he desires his best for you. You trust that and you believe that. Our children are longing to see authentic examples of faith in life as it is being lived. To see that this life does work, this Christian life. That God's blessings and favors rest upon those who walk in his ways and in obedience to his commands. No matter how countercultural it may be. No matter how nonsensical it may seem. Teach them by modeling what faith and the love for God looks like in life as we live it. I think faith is caught far more than it is taught. And by that I mean, let them see, let your children see how you have integrated every aspect of your life with your faith. Not just on Sundays, not just in this building, but every moment in your work, in your play, in your rest, in your pleasure. Let them see you integrate your faith into all those spaces. You know, uh, today we, we, the prayer focus was on Thrive at Work. I didn't, wasn't trying to time it. But I think that is, um, you know, such a, a great reminder. Um, I, I really do hope that, that most of you will participate in, in what uh, is being offered through Thrive at Work. Um, it really is an attempt to, to help all of us take what we do five days out of the week and integrate our faith into a place that is often a very difficult place to live out our faith. And I, I know I was in the corporate world for almost 20 years, and I, I understand the challenges of that. And it's so easy, I think, to just create this dichotomy in our own lives between the secular and the sacred and let work be work and worship be worship and not bring the two together. And yet, even though our children may not see us at our workplace, as we integrate our faith into that place, they will know, they will see. God will bless the work of your hands as you bring faith into it, as you honor him by the ways that you treat your coworkers, as you, the way you talk about them, the way that you may manage the people under you, the way that you work with integrity, the diligence in which you do your work. These are all ways in which we can integrate our faith and model for our children what it looks like.
Do they see the kindness of strangers and compassion for those that are less fortunate in our world? You know, I think even the ways, very simply, the way that we treat other people around us, our kids are always watching. The way we, we go to a restaurant and we treat our waiters and waitresses. The way that we treat, you know, immigrants, those that are less fortunate, those who have less money, beggars on the street. They see us. They see, they want to see how faith is integrated into all those places. And, you know, even the way that we spend time with the Lord in our day-to-day lives. You know, I, I used to think that, um, I don't know, it just seemed a bit disingenuous to, like, try to do my quiet time or pray in front of my kids, you know, out in the open. Uh, I always just felt like this was a personal time. They didn't really need to see that. And yet, um, I'm realizing just how important it is even in those very subtle ways, how our kids remember those things. They remember seeing us on our knees, even if we're not praying with them. You know, my dad, who, you know, was an elder for 30, 40 years and just always demonstrated a very quiet faithfulness to me. And I just remember, you know, he, he wasn't the perfect dad. And, you know, we didn't talk a lot even growing up. But one thing I did learn from him is just, you know, he would spend hours and hours every every week just in this basement and his desk reading the Bible. And, uh, you know, he would ask us to pray for things. And it was just little things even, not just big things, you know, not just health matters in our family or financial issues, but just little things. When little things, like when the car would have an issue, just ask us to pray for it. And it just made me realize, you know, this is, this is what faith looks like, integrated and even to the smallest things in life. Let, them, let your children see you wrestle in prayer over unanswered prayer. Let them pray along with you. But let them see you struggle through the process, not just talk about the victories in the past tense. Let them hear stories of God's faithfulness and testimony in your life. That's essentially what this, this chapter is telling us. Recounting all these Stories of God's goodness in his word, but also just in their lives. This, is, this, is, this was their lives. Very personal to them. Their grandparents. Their parents. And I think that's the habit that we need to bring is just to speak of what God is doing in our lives as we are living it with our children. Let them see how it affects and permeates into every corner of what we do and who we are. You know, the other thing I want to say is, is this. is I think when we love God as he has called us to love him, then I think we will love the things that God loves. Right? And I think this means that we will love the church. God loves the church. Christ died for the church. And I think it's important for us to remember that. That in this place, in this space that God loves. And when we love the church as God loves the church, we are obeying this command, I believe, very profoundly. And our children are witness to that. You know, but if church becomes, honestly, nowadays with, you know, the emergence of the mega church, uh, there's so much, especially in America, of this consumer mentality. We will choose a church because it offers this or that, a good children's program, a good youth group, good worship, or great teaching. And yet, where does our love for the church, our expression of love for the church, where is that 
modeled for our children if that is our mentality, if that is our commitment, if that is the level of our sacrifice to the church. Um, you know, uh, I was debating on whether to share this or not because I want to be very careful in how I say this, and I'm speaking to you as, as, as a pastor and a friend, one of your pastors, not uh, at all in a tone of condemnation or to, or to um, you know, instill guilt. But as your children are growing up, I, you know, I, like I showed you, my child, I, know, I wanted nothing more. My dream for my son was to be a shortstop for the St. Louis Cardinals, if that wasn't obvious. Um, and so I, I had him in Little League since he was like five years old. And I spent a lot of time teaching him the sport of baseball. And he got pretty good. And, you know, as early as like six, seven, eight years old, you know, he was, he was being asked to play in some of these travel leagues. And as a parent, you know, we had to make a decision. Like, are we going to go this route or not? And we had to be very careful about it. And I realized, like, you know, you know there were, we did sign him up for travel. And there were Sundays that we missed at church. And, you know, that was a, a conscious decision. And then when it got up to, like, junior high, high school level baseball, um, travel just takes on a whole other life of its own where it's, it's literally like almost every weekend you're just gone. It's very expensive, too. But we began to realize, as, you know, Kim and I were talking, like, this is too much. And, you know, the thing is, we knew, like, if we cut it off here, he's probably not going to play um, baseball in high school, which is really what I thought was a realistic maybe goal for him. Um, but that's a decision we made. He ended up doing this semi-travel thing where he just played, you know, local teams around the different suburbs. But that was a decision we made. And I say this because I know some of you have, have children who are now just getting into sports and, frankly, were very good. Uh, I'm, I'm sure far better than Caleb was at baseball. And so maybe it's a harder decision for you than it was for me. But I want to challenge you in that regard. That as God calls us to love the church, I think that also involves a commitment to the church right? Because ultimately, what are we modeling for our children when we miss every other Sunday because they're involved in this or that? It's really telling them this is more important, isn't it? And I'm telling you this because I've seen it with my own eyes. You know, my wife, Kim, was, has been in children's ministry for many years, and uh, at a previous church, she, she was in the children's ministry for 10 years. And um, since basically about 2000, or even before that, the late 90s. And we left that church in 2008. And so she saw all these kids who were about two, three years old. There was a group of about 15 of them that grew up over the course of another 10, 15 years now, 20 years even. And we've seen them literally grow up with our own eyes. And we've stayed connected with them and their families. And um, some of them actually even come to some of our summer retreats the last few years. You may have met some of them. And they've helped out with the children's ministry during our summer retreat. And it's funny, you know, it's, what, I've, what I've realized is, is it's almost like a, there's a longitudinal study right before us. And, you know, we have a lot of these parents that we're still connected to from this previous church who will come to us. And, you know, some of them will, will just bemoan to us like, oh, can you just please play for our son or our daughter? They're not going to church anymore. Now they're college age or even out of college. And they ask us, like, can you just, can you please do something? Can you talk to them? Can you pray for them? And I see, I see just, just how devastated they are in their hearts that their children have essentially walked away from the faith 
They're not going to church. And honestly, I, I hate to say this, but oftentimes, not 100%, but oftentimes those children who are not um, going to church, who, aren't, who don't have a sincere faith as they've now entered into adulthood, are the same ones who, who really didn't um, commit themselves to a church when they were younger. That shouldn't surprise any of us, really, right? And so really, it's not that much of a mystery, is it? That when, as a young age, in a young age, we model for our children a love for the church by serving this church, by being integrated into the community of this church, by allowing us people to love upon us within that community of faith and that family of faith in such a way that our children can actually see it, then, of course, they would want to be a part of that, would they not, largely? by the grace of God. And so I want to challenge you in that way, that even today as we think about how do we share our faith, you know, I know it's difficult because with our children, I I know it's difficult because oftentimes, you know, we're here only once a week, and if that's the level of our commitment, then I, I think it will be difficult. But if we can commit ourselves to be into the community of this church, to really see this as a family of faith, you know, when we come together and a child is dedicated, that is, That's what we're doing, isn't it? We're actually standing up and committing ourselves that we are going to help as much as we can within this family of faith to raise your child in the way of the Lord alongside you. And I hope those are more than just empty words for us. You know, um, Pastor Steve, I think at the beginning of this year, our annual meeting, we talked about how this year we really do want to build uh, more of a sense of intergenerational faith in our church that um, it is so hard to raise our children in faith that we really do need the help of this community of faith to do it. And, um, you know, I think that is, what I, that is my vision for this church as well. We're not there, but I want to help us get there, and I, and I hope that we can all commit ourselves to that, that we would see each of our own children as even our own, that we would be vested in the faith of, our, of one another's children, and that we would actually take interest in building relationship with other kids at our church with the purpose of being able to be a model of faith for them. And I think one of the things that stuck out from what Pastor Steve shared, you know, back in January about this desire to be more intergenerational is just, you know, this, um, this statistical research that came out of this book called Sticky Faith, which I've been reading. And, and it just talks about how for so many research has shown that for so many kids who have held on to their faith, Um, In their later years, uh, there's been at least five people besides their parents who have been a model of faith for them. And so I hope, my prayer is that this would be that place as well. That we would demonstrate through the ways that we live in obedience to God and in 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 faith to his character, that we would live out our faith in such a way that our children would see it with their own eyes. Every waking moment. Let me close with this. In verse 20, it says this. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules and the Lord has come, God has commanded you, then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord has brought us up out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. You know, I, 
I don't know why, that just stuck out to me in those verses. When your son asks you in time, when your child actually approaches you and says, what's the meaning of all this that you're doing? What does this all really mean? Verse 21 says, then, then you shall say. And I think there's something to be learned here. Is, you know, oftentimes um, I will say to my wife, like, honey, not, actually, I never say the word honey. <laughs> I don't know why I just said that. <laughs> I say, Kim, <laughs> not every moment is a teaching moment. I thought that was so profound. I don't know if I made that up. But she's like always trying to teach our kids. You know, she's a children's ministry director. That's what she does. And it's like every moment in life I feel like she wants to like tell them something about the Bible or tell them about what they're doing wrong or tell them about what Jesus says. And, and you know, to her credit, she's always on top of that. To my discredit, I feel like I need to be actually speaking more as the father. Um, but not every moment is a teaching moment. I think... You know, often we can exasperate our own children if, if all we do is talk, tell them. Tell them what they're doing wrong. Tell them what they need to do right. But if we can model for them this faith, then I think if we can live it out and integrate our faith into every aspect of who we are and what we do, then the questions, I believe, will come. And out of a sincerity in their own hearts, they will ask, why do we do this? And we are to seize that moment when they are truly seeking. And they will remember things that you don't even think they'll remember. And yet as you do that in faith, there will come a day, I believe, when your son and your daughter will ask you in time, what is the meaning of this? Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. You know, when Jesus was tempted three different times by Satan in the wilderness, do um, you know which book he quoted from? He quotes every time from the book of Deuteronomy. And I think there's something to be learned here. Because what it tells us is that the truths found in this book, truths that were dismissed by the parents of these children in their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, these truths were not forgotten by Jesus in his 40 days in the wilderness. No one modeled faith and obedience in the day-to-day life of living better than Jesus Christ. And he is our righteousness He is the ultimate revelation of God's love for us. And he literally showed us the love of God by the sign on his hands. By the front lip between his eyes. With the wood on the cross. The extent of his love for us. And God is asking us to respond to that love. Not with a half-hearted love, but with a whole heart, soul, and strength. He's asking us to obey him. Not so that we will curry his favor, but because we trust that he knows better and that he, he, he wants the best for us. 
And I know some of us, that's maybe where we are right now. We are just struggling to obey. We struggle to have the faith to obey God. We're struggling to love who God has called us to love. We're struggling to forgive someone God is asking us to forgive. We're just struggling to do what's right. And God is reminding us in Deuteronomy 6, at the heart of it is to remember and to know who God is, how he loves you, his heart for you, what he has done for you and for every generation before you. And out of that realization, out of that revelation, may God grant you the faith to respond to his love by reciprocating that love back to him. And I know there are some others who may be struggling in this room to release your children to the Lord. They may be struggling in their own faith journey. And it keeps us up at nights. But Oswald Chambers says this. He says, The remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Even the salvation of our own children. And so let us turn our fear away from Everything else but God. Let us turn it back to God. Not fear as we understand it, but fear as the Bible teaches us. A trust in God's character. A father who desires our best. A father who's in control of all things. A father who knows the end from the beginning. Let us surrender our greatest fears to him and discover what it means to live in the peace and in the presence of the fear of the Lord. Take a moment. I know your heart as parents. I share in that same heart. My heart grieves when I sense that my children may not know the Lord. And I know your heart grieves too. God's heart grieves even more. So let us turn our hearts to him. Let us look to him. He alone is the one that can only transform hearts. Let us ask him to do what only he can do. But let, him, let us also ask him to grant us the faith to do what he's calling us to do, the part he's asking us to play. And in a moment, uh, our worship team will close us.